Thank you, Polly, but you know that's kind of scary. It always gives me a peculiar feeling when I am present at a meeting like this, and let me start by saying that my name is Marty, and I am an alcoholic, and I have a right to be here. Thank you, Polly, but you know that's kind of scary. It always gives me a peculiar feeling when I am present at a meeting like this, and let me start by saying that my name is Marty Mann, and I am an alcoholic, and I have a right to be here. I'm not here consulting and advising, let me tell you. I'm here because I'm a member, because I need to be here, and because I want to be here. But when I hear something like that, and I gave Polly permission to do this, she felt it was only fair that all the people here should know the other things I did besides what I did as an AA. Uh, I began to feel very schizophrenic indeed. I'm a real split personality. Fundamentally, I am Marty, an alcoholic who, by the grace of God, recovered in AA. And were that not true, none of these other things could have happened. If that did not remain true, they would all collapse like a house of cards. Because my life is built on what I learned when I came to AA. And to the best of my ability, I continue living that way. I particularly liked last night what Tom Breen was saying about a way of life a way of living. For that is what we get here. I have often said, and I'll say it again now, that they get us into AA under false pretenses. We come here and we become a member because of our drinking, period. We come here to find a way to handle it, and I think that I'm not exaggerating when I guess that about 99% of us come here to learn how to drink like other people. That is our deepest hope. That's what we'd like. And one of the hardest things for us is that we find out that that's the one thing we can't do. We learn in AA that we've got to give that up altogether if we want to get well. And then they reach out their hands and say it's not going to be easy and Grab on here and come our way because we'll show you how it can get easier and how eventually it can even be fun. I don't think any alcoholic believes while they're drinking, no matter how bad it is, that there is a Chinaman's chance of their ever having fun sober. I think one of the problems that we have in reaching people is their conviction that a life without alcohol is a long, gray waste. But it's like being set down in the desert and told to start walking and there's absolutely no end in sight. And what they learn here, and I thought Tom expressed it very well last night, is that there can be fun and laughter and satisfaction in a life without alcohol. This was the greatest thing I found when I first came here. And let me tell you, once again, to point out that I do have a right to be here, just a little bit about what happened to me with drinking. When I began, and I was a little older than the man, I was 17. <laughs> I 
I've heard those stories, too. Six months old, three months old, and I agree about that prenatal business. <laughs> and scientifically speaking, you know, this is possible. Babies have been born drunk to alcoholic mothers who were drunk when giving birth. And they've had withdrawal symptoms in the first 24 hours of their life. So it is possible to begin in a prenatal state. But that wasn't me. I was 17. And the first thing I discovered was that alcohol was magic for me. It solved all my immediate problems. I happened to be very shy. I felt like a bump in a log with a group. I was afraid of people. I didn't feel comfortable. I didn't feel as if I belonged. And with one or two or three drinks, I forgot all that and began to have a good time, and therefore other people could have a good time with me. Well, this is terribly important to someone who's growing up, male or female. The process of growing up is never one of unadulterated pleasure for anybody. It's full of problems, and it's full of difficulties, and it's full of fears. And for some of us, fortunately only a small proportion, for some of us, when we discover alcohol, it is true magic. It solves that problem. And almost immediately we find that it solves a lot of other problems, too. That on any occasion when we're feeling a little nervous or a little shaky or a little insecure, if we have a couple of drinks, those feelings disappear. We can face anything. The moment that we discover that, in actuality, we are dependent upon alcohol. We need it in order to function in a number of different ways comfortably. And we don't want to face any of those things unless we're awfully certain that we have what we need to make it possible. And that's drink. Well, this happened with me. And I used to say in my early days in AA that I'd been a normal drinker my first ten years of drinking, and I believed it. And it wasn't until I had been sober for quite a few years and begun to do some reading and some honest thinking backwards, which isn't too easy to do, that I came to realize that actually I had never been a normal drinker. For a normal drinker, alcohol just isn't very important. It's nice. They like it. They enjoy it. It has certain uses. But it isn't all important. It certainly is not magic. I think, therefore, that I was actually an alcoholic from the moment I began to drink. The only thing about that first ten years was that I didn't get into any serious trouble. I could handle it. One of the things that I often say to groups of young people while I'm talking to them, and it always gets a gasp and instant attention, is that one of the earliest symptoms of alcoholism is to be able to outdrink everybody else. The person who has hollow legs, the person who sees that everybody else gets home, the person who always remembers what happened, the person who can drink like a gentleman or like a lady is in danger. This comes as a real shock to most young people who have been brought up on all the myths that we were brought up on, that this is a sign of prowess, a sign of virility, a sign of adulthood, uh, that this is a wonderful thing. Well, it isn't a wonderful thing. It's a danger signal. And I sure had it. 
But as I say, I'd been in AA quite a few years before it dawned on me that if I had gained and deserved the reputation of being able to drink more than anybody else, that I must have been drinking more than anybody else. And is that normal? I did drink more than anybody else right from the beginning. I could handle it. I could hold it. I didn't get drunk. I didn't fall down. And I did remember. It was ten years of this kind of drinking before I began to draw blanks, to have blackouts. Before I began to know what people meant by hangovers. And then I learned it so well that I now realize this is a word that is not adequate for what happens to us. The hangover that the normal drinker has on occasion there's very little resemblance to the epic, shattering, life and death thing that occurs to us. Our hangovers are fantastically horrible. And because this is so, we discover, usually somebody tells us, sometimes we discover it by experimenting, that the one thing that will lighten this horror of the hangover is another drink. And then we're really hooked. At least I was. Because this is when you have to have drinks to get up in the morning. And they begin to wear off, so you have to have another one to keep the level. And you're nipping all day long. See, I was not a periodic drunk. I was a constant, continual drunk. And when I got hooked on it, I drank around the clock. Oh, I made every kind of effort. Not to tip over, not to go too far, to take just enough to keep me feeling like everybody else feels all the time without any effort. God, how I hated those people. <laughs> I'd get in a bus and I'd see all those healthy, comparatively happy faces and I'd curse every one of them because I had painfully arrived at the place where I could get on a bus by virtue of a pint or two of liquor to get there. And frankly, I never did like the taste very much. And I would go out to lunch and I'd see other people having tomato juice and nice big sticky sweet desserts. <laughs> and you know, I liked those things, but I couldn't take them. They were too much for me. I had to have my alcohol. I had to have it in order to function. Now, actually, I was living abroad when this happened, in England, and I began first the geographic cure right in London, where I was. I had no idea what it was that was happening to me, not the faintest idea in the world. This was in the 30s. The word alcoholism was not known and not used. I went to a good many doctors because I was very concerned about what was happening to me, and the best I got was that I was having a nervous breakdown and ought to go to a nice place in the country and rest for a while. Well, I did that a couple of times. Of course, I took me with me, and nobody ever said to quit drinking, so it didn't make any difference whether I was in the city or the country. It was the same thing. I think many AAs today are not really aware of just how hard it was 25 or 30 years ago because of the fact that no one knew one single thing about this condition, and because of the fact that it was never mentioned. It didn't even have a name. You know, I'm one of those that is very glad that there is a word for us. 
I was delighted to discover that there was something called alcoholism and that I was something called an alcoholic because I'd been sure I was something so much worse that that sounded good to me. Well, in any case, I didn't get any help wherever I turned. Nobody had any ideas. And oddly enough, nobody ever suggested that I quit altogether. I went on the wagon every once in a while, for a while, and like any other alcoholic, I could do this. So of course, it never lasted as long as I said it would when I began. If I said a month, it would be two weeks. If I said a week, it would be two days. But still, I could quit for short periods. And I know some alcoholics that were able to quit for months or even years on their own. The thing was, it always had an end. There was always a final period in which they felt they now had it licked and they could go back to drinking and in no time flat they were right back where they'd been before they quit. But I don't think that knowledge about this was very widespread in those days. Certainly it wasn't in the circles I moved in. And my geographic cure, of course, began locally in London where when people began to question my drinking and suggest that I was becoming a drunk, and I didn't like that word, that was a fighting word, my picture of a drunk was a skid row bum, and I didn't fit that picture. So they were just being insulting. And I would move from that group into another group. Uh, I happened to be in the photography and public relations business, so I knew a lot of different groups. And I was able to move from one to the other, until they began talking seriously to me about my drinking and suggesting I do a little less of it, and then I'd move on. Well, I went through London like a dose of salt. I was constantly on the move, and then I began moving geographically. And the first thing I did was to get a job running a hotel that two friends of mine owned in a place called Broadway, beautiful little town, not very far from Oxford or from... Uh, the Avon, the Stratford country, the Shakespeare country. And they wanted to go away for the winter, and they wanted a friend they could trust, you know, like me, look after their interests. Well, I took this very seriously, and so when I got up there, I said, I'm going to quit drinking. It was the beginning of Lent, and I said, I'll just quit drinking for Lent. And I did. Most terrible things happened to me. I had the shakes. I had chills and fever. I had cold sweat, I couldn't eat, I couldn't sleep. I called in the little local doctor and told him my symptoms, and he shook his head. He said, mm, you must have got some tropical disease. <laughs> so he put me to bed and gave me lots of fluids and watched me closely, and in two or three days I was all right. He was the proudest man in England. He cured an unknown tropical disease. I just didn't know what it was like to quit suddenly when you'd reached the point that I had been reached. I hadn't the faintest idea, and neither had he. Of course, he didn't ask me any questions about drinking, and it never occurred to me to tell him. I had no idea that that was connected. But at this point, I had moved into practically the last stages of alcohol. Now, I knew by some... I don't know how... I just had a hunch. I knew that I couldn't keep a bottle in my room and keep anything in the bottle. So I didn't keep a bottle in my room. And this little hotel did not have a bar. It didn't have a license. But there was a pub across the street, and there was a pub out back. And we had a wonderful old butler that was, uh, well, he looked like a storybook butler. And he was a very nice guy, and he was a friend of mine. And I'd send him across the street for a tray full of pink gin. 
Now that just straight gin was the tiniest little drop of vermouth in it. And this was a Jacobean building, a very old building. And in all of the downstairs rooms, and there were four or five of them, there were little cupboards in the wall. And he'd stash these drinks in all the cupboards. And I would make my inspection. You know, I'd go around seeing that everything was all right, open the cupboard and look in, close the cupboard door. Then he'd remove the empty glasses. That kept me going through the morning. There was another terrible thing that happened there. The two men that owned the hotel had been experimenting with making homemade wines out of all sorts of things, dandelions and gooseberries and raspberries and so on. They didn't know much about it. But the attic was absolutely crammed with a great big pyramid of bottles of the wine they'd made that was supposedly aging. And you see, I wouldn't keep anything in my room. But at two o'clock in the morning or three o'clock in the morning when I really had to have something, I'd raid this stack of bottles. And I'd empty the bottle and put the empty on the bottom and a new full one on top. It was the most ghastly stuff that anybody ever drank, I can assure you. But it did have a little alcohol in it, so it helped. Years later, at a cocktail party in New York, one of the owners of this hotel was there. He came up to me and he said, you know, I didn't think you'd even be alive. He said, was it you that drank all that terrible wine? And I said, yes, it was. And he said, well, you have no right to be alive. It was that terrible. The things you will do when you reach this stage, the need being so great, are incomprehensible to people who have not been through it. And I think a great many people that want to help us and would like to help us, and particularly as more and more people get interested in this, have no real conception of the deep suffering the alcoholic is going through and this terrible, terrible need for liquor. How many families, for instance, make this ridiculous mistake of pouring all the liquor down the sink? It's just a waste of money. The alcoholic's got to have it, and he or she is going to get some more somehow. And they almost always manage. But people don't understand that. They don't know it. I know it because I lived it. Because I suffered it. And when it got so bad that I couldn't function anymore and I felt that I had better come home to America because I was absolutely convinced by this time that I was insane, I came home looking for an answer. What kind of insanity was this and what could be done about it, if anything? Of course, I didn't draw a sober breath by that time. I was drunk all the time. But I was one of those walking drunks, as many of us are. You can get around, even if you don't know what you're doing because you're in a blackout. You're still physically functioning and moving around. I didn't have a job, so I didn't have that kind of uh, uh, straitjacket around me. But I began looking for help. And in my first year home in New York, I saw seven different psychiatrists and animals. I was going to them because of my conviction that I was insane. And you know, I had an extraordinary stroke of luck. They were all very honest men. When they asked me, and they did, and I told them about my drinking, saying that this is why I thought I was insane, it had changed so, I no longer could manage it, they told me they didn't know whether they could help me, and they didn't think they could. And that the best thing I could do was to commit myself for a state, to a state institution. And when I said for how long, they wouldn't tell me. Well, in effect, they were confirming my worst fears. 
They were letting me know that I was hopelessly insane and that once I got into one of those lock-up places, I'd never get out. And I wasn't quite ready for that, so I would leave every doctor's office. I'd head for the nearest bar. I'd order three or four doubles and get them down as fast as I could to forget what I'd been told. And I would then go on for a while until through somebody I knew I'd get the name of another one and I'd try again. And this went on until the eighth man. And the eighth man looked at me and he said, you know, people like you, in my experience, have one chance in a hundred. But you clearly want to get well. So maybe you're that one. I'll take a chance. I was broke. And so he said, uh, I can't send you to a sanitarium. But I can put you in Bellevue Hospital. Now that's our city hospital in New York. I didn't know very much about it, but what I knew wasn't good. I didn't think I was going to like it at all, but I was desperate. And I said, I'll go anywhere you say. And he was impressed by that. And he said, well, I'm not going to put you in a psychiatric division. You're not insane, whatever you think. I'm going to put you in the neurological division. He was the head of that department. And we'll see what we can do for you. And there I stayed for seven months. And he would come and talk to me once a week and ask me how I was doing. Somehow or other, I was aware of the fact that nothing was changing inside me. I was safe. I was sober. But I didn't know if I got out of there how long I'd be either safe or sober. I was afraid to go out. And I told him I needed more than that. Whether he thought I was insane or not, there was something wrong with my head, and I wanted psychiatric help. Maybe I was an unusual alcoholic, but I believe there are others like me. I insisted on it. And he finally agreed with me, and he helped me to get into a sanitarium in the country where I could get regular psychiatric help. Well, for a year, I had it every day. I learned a lot about myself. I learned a lot about many of my problems with people and my problems with myself. But I didn't learn a damn thing about drinking. And every now and then, when I was permitted to go into town to the dentist or maybe to go to a theater or shop, I'd come back drunk. Now, I didn't intend to. I didn't want to. But looking back, I suspect what I was doing was testing out how much this new learning I was getting was changing the situation. Was I now going to be able to drink? You see, I was awfully unlucky. There were a lot of doctors at that sanitarium, and the one I was assigned to, who was the head of it, had told me right in the beginning that I could never drink again. The first time I'd heard this, and I couldn't accept it. He couldn't give me any reasons why. He just said, you're one of those people who can't drink. Well, you know what I asked him. I said, do you drink? Well, it turned out he didn't really like it. So I decided that he was just a blue nose. You know, he didn't like it, so he didn't want anybody else to like it. And I did not believe him. He could not give me any reasons that I could accept for why I couldn't drink. And therefore, I kept testing it out to see if I hadn't improved enough so now I could. You see, all the other psychiatrists were telling their patients they could learn how to drink. 
And I have several other friends up there who were going to other doctors, who were also alcoholics I know now, though none of us ever used that word. And they were learning how to drink, and I just thought I had the wrong guy. My doctor was a man named Dr. Harry Tebow. Most of you know his name. He was the first psychiatrist to really look into AA and to become sober. But he instinctively knew some of the things that AA had learned. He knew, for instance, that an alcoholic could never safely drink again, and this is what he was trying to teach me and what I was finding so hard to swallow. Well, I'd been there a year, and I'd got drunk on many occasions, and uh, it had finally reached the point where he said he didn't think he could help me anymore, and if it happened again, I'd have to leave. And I asked you to realize that this was my last hope. I had been seeking for help for a good many years without finding it. And here I was at last in a really very beautiful place with a doctor who was terribly interested in me and doing his damnedest to help me. And I was about to throw it all out the window because in spite of knowing that, I didn't quit drinking. I just was a little more careful and I managed to sneak in two or three times. And nobody knew it as far as I knew. I'd gotten away with it. Just about this time, Dr. Tebow sent for me one day, and he said, you know, somebody has given me this to read, and he showed me a manuscript in red cardboard covers. And he said, it's about a group of people like you. And I think maybe they can help you. I want you to read this book. The title of it was Alcoholics Anonymous. It wasn't a book yet. This was the manuscript. And what had happened was that before the book went to the printer, it had been decided to try it out on a number of doctors and ministers because Bill and the others felt very strongly they didn't want anything in the book that would offend either medicine or religion because they recognized that first early handful that this was going to be the source of people that they could help that they were going to come largely, certainly at that time when nobody had ever heard of this, through doctors or through clergymen. And they wanted to be sure that the book didn't have anything in it that would prevent them from sending people to those AAs who wanted to help. And because Dr. Tebow served on the board with the sister of one of the early members, and her brother had asked her if she had any doctors who would read it, it had gotten into his hands. Fortunately, he was a very open-minded man. Unfortunately, perhaps, he was struggling with a patient with whom he was not getting very far, named Marty. But at any rate, he read it, and he didn't send it back. He decided to try it out on me. Well, I began to read. At first, I was wildly excited. I was excited because here at last I was finding a description of what was wrong with me and it had a name. Dr. Tebow never used the word alcoholism. I tell you, it was not in use in the 30s by anyone. No one had ever told me what I had. I was left to grope around assuming that it was some kind of peculiar insanity that didn't even have a name. And here I found a name. I was delighted. The next thing I found was a description of what they said was the disease of alcoholism. It said alcoholism is an allergy of the body 
coupled with an obsession of the mind. And that no one knew what this bodily difference was, so there wasn't anything they could do about it. And once it happened, it was irreversible. This meant that the body of the alcoholic could never safely put alcohol into itself again. But the obsession of the mind kept you trying to do that even when you couldn't. And AA, in effect, was treatment for the obsession of the mind. It was to show you how to overcome that obsession so you didn't take a drink against your own will, which every alcoholic has done many a time, when it was the last thing you wanted to do. But here was the explanation I'd been looking for. Here was the reason why I could never take a drink again. There was something different in me, whether born in me or created, made no difference. My body was different. It would not take alcohol and handle it normally. It couldn't. And I could accept it. I could accept the fact that it was this kind of a disease, and the only thing I could do was try to get over the obsession of the mind that made me drink even when I didn't want to. Well, that was fine. But then I came a real cropper. I'd always fancied myself as an intellectual, and I had a great deal of intellectual pride. And I had given up the people's opiate called religion about the same time I started drinking. And this darn book was so full of God, you couldn't read a page without coming on it. Now, that was just nonsense to me. I wanted no part of it. So I went right back to Dr. Tebow and I said, look, you've been teaching me that my real trouble is I'm led around by my emotions when I think it's my mind that's deciding. And you tell me I have to stop being led around by my emotions, that I have to learn how to live intelligently. And here you give me a book that offers a purely emotional way out. They're talking about God, self-hypnosis, I said. Well, he let me talk, and when I was through, he just said, you go back and read the book some more. I read, but believe me, that was the slowest reading that had ever been done. I read just enough between sessions with him so that I'd have some good arguments. And I had wonderful arguments. I argued every step of the way in that book, and this went on for a couple of months. And then something happened. And it's the kind of thing, I believe, that happens to many of us. Something that there's no reason for. Uh, you don't quite see what the connection is, and yet it seems to do the job. In my case, it was a crisis in the family for which I felt responsible. It wouldn't have happened if I hadn't been where I was. It had to do with my sister, who was not at fault. And I was so angry about it, and so helpless to do anything about it that I found myself in my room in a towering rage. You know, I don't know if any of you have experienced it, but I know you've read about people who were seeing red with rage. I was seeing red, and murder was in my heart. And in this condition, I was lying on the bed in the little tiny room that I had up under the eaves from the top of the house, and I was saying the usual thing. I'll go into town and I'll get two bottles and I'll get drunk as a skunk and I'll bust this place up. I'll show them. You know, we are universally highly intelligent people, we alcoholics. When we get really angry, we pick up a hammer and beat our own brains out. 
invariably. This matter of getting angry and then wanting to get drunk, to show them. And who are we showing? We're the ones that are getting drunk. We're the ones that are going to suffer. This was precisely my reaction. And while I was feeling this way, at the height of my anger, my eye fell on this damn book that he was making me go on reading, which was lying open on the bed. And in the middle of the page, I wasn't really looking at it, you know, just out of the corner of my eye. It seemed to me there was a sentence that was very black and very sharp, as if it were in raised letters. And it read, We cannot live with anger. And that did it. I don't know why. That was a battering ram that broke down my last resistance. Although I didn't know I was that close to losing my resistance. To an acceptance of faith, to an acceptance of God and the power of God. Because the next thing I knew, I was on my knees beside the bed. And I must have been there quite a while. Because there was a wet spot on the bedspread and the tears were running down my face. And I lifted my head with a sensation of utter and complete freedom. The sensation was so strong that I knew I could walk out of that third-story window and keep right on walking. I knew this. I looked out of the little window under the eaves, and I'd never seen the green so green or the sky so blue. Everything had changed. I don't know how to tell you this because these things are not very easy to put in words, but I knew the presence of God was in that room and that I was free. I was no longer a prisoner. For an alcoholic who has spent by that time a good many years being nothing but a prisoner, a prisoner of yourself, a prisoner of the bottle, a prisoner of circumstances, a prisoner of other people, I used to describe it to Dr. Kibo in our sessions. I'd say it's like living in a glass box. You can see out of it and you can hear, but you can't touch anybody and you can't feel anything. You're cut off. You're isolated. You're a prisoner. So when I say freedom, I meant that kind of freedom. I wasn't in the glass box anymore. And also the circumstances that I was living in, which I had been fighting against, in that institution. I knew I wasn't a prisoner of those circumstances anymore. I was physically free, emotionally free, mentally free. I was free. Well, then I thought about it for a minute, especially this business of walking out the third-story window and keeping on walking. And I think I would have tried it if it hadn't been a little window under the eaves I couldn't get through. I was so certain. I said, well, of course, maybe now I really have gone there. So I rushed downstairs and I beat on Dr. Kibo's door. I was in the building that housed the offices of the psychiatrist there. And he opened the door and when he saw my face, he put the patient who was in there right out and took me in and said, what happened? And I told him. And he asked me a lot of questions. And finally he said to me, I believe you're not insane. He said, I believe you've had an authentic spiritual experience. There's a book that describes things like this. It's called Varieties of Religious Experience by William James. Get it and read it. But he said, whatever it is, hang on to it. Now, you go back upstairs and finish that book. This is a one-track mind this guy has. 
So I went back upstairs and I looked at the book and you know somebody switched books on me. It was entirely different. I started at the beginning and I read it through in a couple of hours. And the minute I finished, I started at the beginning and read it through again. I must have read it ten times in the next couple of weeks. I was like a dry sponge that desperately needed water. I was just soaking it up. Every word in that book made sense to me. Every word in that book meant something to me. Well, I walked around, talk about pink clouds. I was living in some other world. I was way up there. Everything looked beautiful. Not just the grass and the sky, but the people did too. They all looked so nice. The world was a beautiful, beautiful place. I was happy. In fact, a number of people in that institution said that they'd never seen such radiance. Well, I didn't want to spoil this. And people started talking about my going into New York to some house in Brooklyn and meeting a lot of people. Well, I didn't want that. In the original AA book, most of the stories were about people who'd hit really pretty low down. Now, I'd hit bottom too, but it was in a slightly different way. And besides, those stories were about men. At the very back, in the original book, there was one brief story about a woman. She sounded like an older woman. I wasn't certain what kind of a person she'd be. But I somehow couldn't identify myself with these people, and I was scared to death of them, and I did not want to meet them. So I kept putting it off. And it was at least six weeks later that when I went into Dr. Tebow's office, he picked up the phone, he called New York, and he said, yes, she'll be in tonight. She'll be at your house at seven. And he said, you're taking the train this afternoon, and you're going into New York, and you're going to this address, and he handed me his card. And these people will be expecting you, and you're going to a meeting. I went. I am one of those, and there are increasing numbers of them today, who did not go into AA wholeheartedly and entirely willingly. I got a lot of push from several sides, and I'm extremely grateful I had it. And I think it's something that we have to remember, that there are an awful lot of people who need what we have, who for one reason or another cannot bring themselves to reach for it. They may need not one, but many pushes. They may need a little application of force. Mine, you might call forceful persuasion, but it was closer to coercion. And I'm very happy I had it. And they will be too, once they get here. And I think we have to remember this. This is one of the reasons why I believe that it is part of our responsibility to work with all those people out there who are dealing with these people that have not yet got to aid so that they can be bridges to us. They can find ways and means of nudging these people quite hard to get them here. And I believe this because this is what happened to me and it works. And I've seen it work thousands of times since. In fact, I sometimes wonder whether even one percent of us came to AA completely willingly. 
whether we really saw it. Or whether instead the great majority of us had pressures on us from families, from friends, from employers, where we came to AA to get the heat off, to be relieved of that pressure that was push, push, pushing us in this direction. This isn't what I call entirely willingly, but by God it works. And I'm interested in what works. And I think all of us are. AA is a very pragmatic fellowship. We like it and we stay in it because it works. And if there are more ways of getting people here than we normally use, and they work, I think we ought to use them. Well, my coercion got me there, and I got to a meeting that night in Brooklyn, in Bill and Lois's house, and there were probably 35, 40 people there, because in those days, meetings weren't formalized as they are now, they were just get-togethers, and if there was still a family, the whole family came. That's all there was, was what today we call an open meeting. Closed meetings didn't begin for another year and a half or two years. And it looked to me like the biggest mob I'd ever seen. Total strangers. I didn't know any of them, excepting the couple that I had met for dinner and who had brought me. And I went upstairs to leave my coat, and I didn't come down. And after a little while, a woman came up, and she said, I'm Lois. And we want you downstairs. We're waiting for you. And she took me by the arm and led me downstairs. And people began asking me questions, and they were all about drinking. You know, when did you have your last drink? When did you have your last drunk? And to my utter amazement, I answered absolutely truthfully. Now, I'd been lying for a whole year, getting away with it. I didn't think they knew up at the institution the last time I'd had a drink. But I told these perfect strangers without a second thought. And we began talking, and I discovered that they were finishing my sentences, and I was finishing theirs. And that instead of the usual thing, which I had known all my life, of joining a strange group and feeling that I was on the outside looking in, instantly I was on the inside. I belonged. It was a wonderful feeling. There was a man up at the sanitarium that I'd passed the book on to and that I was trying to help, and I had wanted him to come with me because he'd accepted the book, too. But he was a panty waist, and he said, you go and see what it's like, you know. <laughs> and if it's all right, I'll come with you next week. He had a different doctor than mine, and his doctor didn't force him, so there was no way I could make him come if he didn't want to. I stayed in town that night, and he called me the next morning. He said, what was it like? Well, I said, Granny, there's only one thing I can say. We're not alone anymore. And that was my initial introduction into AA, the recognition that I wasn't alone anymore. I had had my freedom from prison with a spiritual experience, all alone, without benefit of people in AA. I got that through the books. But my real induction into AA came when I knew that these were people to whom I belonged and who belonged to me. These were people who understood the way I thought and the way I felt. Now, I agree with what Tom said the other night. 
It is completely wrong to say that only an alcoholic can understand an alcoholic. There are a great many non-alcoholics who have come to understand alcoholics. And here's one sitting right next to me, Father Fred. And I know hundreds all over the country who are as dedicated to this cause and to helping alcoholics as any AA member I've ever met, who care and who do understand. What we ought to say is to be very careful about our words, that no one else really knows what we're going through and how we feel about all these things. This kind of communication of our innermost feelings is the thing we discover with each other. And it is an incredible thing. As a matter of fact, I don't know of any other group in mankind that achieved just by virtue of becoming a part of that group that kind of communication between members. Because it's a communication that is not just of words. It's a communication of the root of your being, of your innermost feeling, and of your thinking, even if it's not expressed. This is what I discovered that first night, that I could talk to these people in a way I had never talked to people, that I felt closer to these strangers whom I'd never seen before that night than I felt to my own sisters and brothers, than I felt to people I'd grown up with and known all my life than I felt for people who had become very close friends. It was a different kind of communication. And it was the most satisfying thing that ever happened to me and the most healing. This made such a difference. It reached into that inner area of personal insecurity. Again, I like the way Tom said it. These people liked me because I was a drunken slob. Not in spite of it. I had come out of a drunk not many months before and heard my sister talking to someone in the living room. She was crying. I was sharing an apartment with her at the time. And she was saying, I don't understand how she can be like that. She's such a wonderful person. She's so intelligent. She's done this, that, and the other thing. How can she do this? Now, I was very close to that sister, and I still am, but it's a different kind of communication and feeling that I had for these strangers than I ever had for anybody else. And I think this is one of the greatest things that AA has to offer. This is the true meaning of fellowship. This is what fellowship is. And it's one of the things that we can be very, very grateful. This is why I say... Uh, as Polly finally said today, that I'm glad I'm an alcoholic. I don't know where, anywhere else I could find this. And I don't think many other people ever have that kind of luck. So we have something as the result of the terrible sorrow and suffering we've been through that is indeed a priceless treasure, that is one of the most wonderful things a human being can be given. And to us... It was an absolutely free gift. All we have to do to have it is go to a meeting or sit down with three or four other AAs at lunch or coffee or dinner, and there it is. It begins to operate instantaneously. I remember many years ago, I went to Rochester, New York for the first time, 
the AA group up there was having its first banquet, and they'd asked me up to speak, and I didn't know anybody up there. I took the train, it was in the dead of winter, and the train got in at 7 o'clock in the morning, and there'd been terrific blizzards, the snow was very high everywhere, it was bitter cold, and I got off the train and there was a couple standing there. They were two little round people, <laughs> very short and very round. It was Dr. and Mrs. Clarence Pearson. He was the first doctor that ever came into AA. Clarence and Polly were both about five foot one and almost as wide as they were high. They were a marvelous, marvelous couple. Clarence started physicians in AA. He died a few years ago. But I had never laid eyes on them before, and they said, we're taking you over to the hotel and we'll have breakfast. So we went over to the hotel and we had breakfast and... They lived way outside of Rochester, so Polly used my room, too, during the day, and they had a lot of things planned for me. And that night, on the way to the banquet, we were picking up a man who wrote the column in that town that was most widely read, not just in that town, but in all of Upper New York State. It was syndicated. And it was his first introduction to AA, and they were very anxious that he had a good impression of it. They wanted more people to know about them. It wasn't so terribly big, that group. And this man, we picked up in the car and we went to the place where the banquet was. And I was sitting next to him at dinner. And after a while he turned to me and he said, you've known the Pearsons a long while, haven't you? And I said, no. Well, he said, you must have. You can tell, you know, you, you're old, old friend. I said, I met them this morning. Oh, so that's what AA's about, said he. This was a smart guy. He was right. He recognized that there was a possibility of contact and rapport and understanding there that was instantaneous, that did not take time to develop. And here again, I think, is one of the greatest tools we have with which to reach outside. That was not the only thing I learned, but let's say it was the basis. It was the platform on which I could stand feeling warm inside for the first time that I could remember and supported inside by others so that I could go ahead and begin to learn the other things that are involved in the 12 steps. Like everybody else, for the first months or years, I was concerned merely with not drinking. I had been frightened to death that I could stay without drinking most of the time in an institution, but I couldn't even do it all the time there. And what would happen to me when I got out? I knew I could go along as long as everything was going very smoothly, but I had no idea what would happen if anything went wrong and things were bound to go wrong. Why, there's not a bowl of cherries. Everybody has problems. And some days you have much more and much worse problems than other days. You've got to get through them, too. And I wasn't certain how well I was going to meet all of these things. And I leaned more and more heavily upon the 12 steps, all of them. I was doing a little bit about every one of them. And I began to realize that they were indeed making basic changes in me. And not the kind of changes that a lot of people think. I was becoming more resilient, more flexible to problems. 
I was beginning to roll a little bit with the punches instead of being knocked flat in my bed. This was new for me. I had never been able to take any of these things without staying awake all night or going into a fit of storm of weeping or being absolutely certain that nobody loved me and I might just as well go down the garden and eat worms. I've been through all the things Tom described. I made two suicide attempts and I said the same things. That'll show them. They'll be sorry. We are convinced that we are unloved. That there is no one who really cares that much. And curiously enough, the first time that we begin to feel that maybe that's not so, maybe there are some people who really care, for a great many of us, the first time that we really felt this is when we came into AA. And it fills a terrible vacuum in your heart. And you begin to feel strong enough to meet some of these outside problems, which you never did before. And so I began working very hard at the steps. And gradually I came to realize what I said earlier, that AA was not what it said it was, a way to stop drinking. It was what Tom said it was last night, a way to live. A way in which we could learn to live. And not just to survive, not just to exist, but to really live and enjoy it. Now, I think anybody's very foolish if they think that because of what I've said and what Tom said last night, that coming into AA is like Cinderella and everything's going to be rosy forever. There's no such thing on this earth. I don't think the good Lord planned it that way. We're here, I suspect, to go to school, to learn, and to grow. But we have been handed, we people who came to AA out of our great need and our great trouble, we have been handed a set of tools in those 12 steps that are designed particularly to help us to grow and to learn to live. And I think one of the most important things is this resilience, this flexibility, this rolling with the punches. This ability, for instance, to accept criticism. I never met an alcoholic that liked that. But you know something? I don't think I've ever met a human being that liked it. Sometimes we forget that we are first and foremost human beings. Well, we have a reason for forgetting it. My God, we were kicked out of the human race. We didn't, we weren't a part of the human race at all when we were drinking. Coming into AA is actually re-entering the human race. It is once again becoming a part of humanity. But we have been so separate and so isolated in our fear and our loneliness and our frustrations and the non-acceptance that everybody had for people like us, and they did. That's no joke. Nobody knew what alcoholism was. They could only tell what they saw with their own eyes, and what they saw with their own eyes was our deliberately, because remember, we didn't drink by somebody knocking us to the floor and putting a funnel in our mouths. We lifted the drink with our own hand to our own lips. 
We walked into a bar on our own feet. We bought the bottles ourselves. This is what people saw. And they said, it's deliberate. They're doing it on purpose. They get some kind of pleasure out of this that we don't understand, and that's all they care about. They don't care about anybody else. They just care about their own pleasure. One of the first things that disabused a great part of the public of this notion that alcoholism was a pleasure, that we were pleasure-mad as a group, was that movie, The Lost Weekend. A great many people saw for the first time the suffering involved in this. And they recognized that it was anything but pleasure. Well, even so, people have learned a little about alcoholism, I hope. I don't think we're relegated quite as frequently and quite as completely outside the human race as a group as we used to be. But because of all that, Many of us got the feeling that we were indeed totally different from other people. And when we got into AA, we didn't lose that feeling because it was within AA that we found this communication and this acceptance. It was not outside right away. A lot of people, you know, are from Missouri. They're going to wait and see. That guy stopped drinking before. How do I know it'll last any longer this time? He'll be behaving the way he's always behaved. They don't accept us instantly. They wait to see. And it's a perfectly normal thing to do. But these things aid and abet us in our feeling of being absolutely different. Now, I submit that if alcoholism turned people green, we might be able to say that we really are that different. It'd be a great help, too. <laughs> You know, right at the beginning, they get a little pale green. The longer they go, the deeper the green gets. You'd know just what stage they were in. And you'd have no doubt at all as to whether they were or were not an alcoholic. It would be, it'd be wonderful. But it would also set us aside if alcoholism turned us green. We would be different. We'd stick out like sore thumbs. I don't think we're very different. I've always liked a phrase that used to be around a lot in my early days, alcoholics are people, only more so. And that's true. We have all of the assets and the liabilities of everybody else. Now, it's as if we had two sides of a garden on each side of that aisle. And we planted plants in both sides. But we only gave water and sunlight to one side. Over here are the assets. Over here are the liabilities. And as long as we drink, we're watering and putting sun on the liabilities, and they're growing and growing and growing, and that's all people can see. This poor little garden over here, our assets, are good quality. Those poor little plants get smaller and smaller and smaller and darn near shrivel away. But this is not just true of alcoholics. This is true of other people, too. You all know people that are far from what we'd like to be, who aren't necessarily alcoholics, SOBs and such. <laughs> They're not alcoholics. But some of them are. 
What I'm saying is that alcoholism, like rain, falls on the just and the unjust alike. All kinds of people develop alcoholism, and we have all kinds among us. And we are people like all the other people. And what we're trying to do, quite honestly, is not just return to being like the -the run-of-the-mill person, non-drinking or normal drinking. We are trying to be a little better. You look at those steps. I wish the whole world would adopt them. I think it would do quite a lot about wars and problems and difficulties. But if we follow those steps honestly, we are engaged in a real effort to become a little better than average. We talk about honesty. Well, I don't think that's such a usual commodity in the world today. I don't think there's so much of it around. And I don't know many groups that are making that a basic part of their personal program of living. But we are. And truthfulness. And kindness and compassion. And a desire to help others. Which we act out when we do 12-step work. And if we're really following the 12 steps, we'll remember the last half of the 12th. Practice these principles in all our affairs, not just with alcohol, with everyone. Well, this is a pretty good program of living. If you really try to follow it, and let me say here, I don't know anybody that follows it 100%. We go right up with wings. What most of us are doing is attempting to follow it. We're trying. And we're honestly trying. And because of that step in there that says, whenever we are wrong, promptly admit it, we're trying to do a daily readjustment to this way of living, recognizing that we're going off the beam, even without meaning it practically every day, some way or another. But on the whole, we're marching forward. We are embarked upon, and I hate the phrase, but it's a self-improvement program. I think it's been remarked here before that if you look at those 12 steps, only one of them mentions drinking. That's why I say we were got in here under false pretenses. The 12 steps dispense with drinking in the first step, and they just don't talk about it anymore. Those steps are not about drinking, they're about you and me as people. What kind of a human being are we going to become? How hard are we going to try to be the kind of person that maybe we had as an ideal when we were in our teens? The kind of person we'd most like to be? The kind of person who is an asset wherever they are? At home, in groups, in their business? The kind of person people want around? Makes them feel good if that person is there. All right, a good person. You know, I think deep in our hearts, that's what every one of us has always wanted. I think we want to be good. And I think most people do. But not all of them are lucky enough to have a set of tools as well designed as ours to help us to achieve this. Or at least to make a lot of progress. So what happens? After a while in AA, we're not thinking about drinking anymore. We're thinking about us, how we are, how we're behaving, how we're growing. 
What kind of relationship we've established with that power greater than ourselves? How real is it? How good is it? What are we doing about it? We're thinking in terms of gratitude and of helping others, putting our shoulder to the wheel. Do you know what we're doing? We're taking responsibility. I thought the theme for the meeting in Toronto in July was the most beautiful thing I had ever read. I am responsible, it said. And then it picked out one specific thing to say we were responsible for. Whenever anyone reaches out a hand, AA shall be there. But let me tell you something. If we want to be there when someone reaches out a hand, we have to be responsible in its total sense. We have to take responsibility for ourselves. We have to be responsible for our actions. We have to be a responsible human being. And this is the very thing that alcoholism destroys. What are some of the words that are used about an active alcoholic? Not just irresponsible, unreliable. And it's true, an active alcoholic is both those things, irresponsible and unreliable. But if we are truly following the AA program, the steps, we are learning how to be responsible and we are gradually accepting more and more responsibility. And that means we're growing up. These are the things about AA that matter to me. The fellowship, yes. That'll always matter. It's a great thing for someone who travels the way I do to know that there's nowhere I can go that I'm not going to find friends. It's a wonderful thing to sit up till three in the morning discussing exactly the same things with a South African who speaks Afrikaans that you talk about with your old AA friends in New York. All the people in New Zealand or Australia. The communication I talked about works no matter what country you're in or what nationality you are or what your native language is. This is universal, this thing we have. It knows no boundaries, geographically, ethnically, language-wise, or any other. Now, it's a marvelous thing to have that. So I'm not running down the fellowship. It's tremendous. But within that, and partly because we have that, which gives us a kind of protection, a safety, a wall of defense, while we need it, and many of us need it for the first few years, against the outside world. The world where we've stubbed our toes and gotten so bruised and beaten up. And maybe it takes a while before we can go back into that fully. Meanwhile, we have our protected inner group among people to which we belong and where we feel safe and where we feel comfortable. But I think we have to be careful because some of us sometimes, knowing that we do exist now all around the world, that we are actually quite strong, that we haven't joined something that has maybe 30 people in it as it had when I went in, but 350,000, and I think probably a good many more that didn't get counted. But because of that, and because of this peculiar thing we have with each other, this kind of communication and bondage that we have, 
It's a bondage with each other more than just a bond. It's a, it's almost an unbreakable thing. Because of that, we sometimes think we don't even belong to the human race. That we're separate, we're different, and we're better. Well, let me remind you that what we're seeking first is to stay sober long enough to become the kind of person we want to be. Now, the rest of the world doesn't even have to try. They already are. So we're only catching up with them at that point. We're just becoming like other people. And if we really work at these steps, there are other groups that are trying to become better people. Many religious groups spend a lot of time on it, and some that aren't even religious. I'm trying to make you see that actually we are a minority group. There's six and a half million alcoholics in the United States, but there are 190 million people. Six and a half million is an awful lot. And I remind you of that. We claim 350,000 members. Six and a half million. That's what's ahead. Those are the people who still need help. Those are the ones who don't know, perhaps, about us, or are afraid to come to us, or don't have the chance, or are, are given the chance, or who don't live long enough. Today, people are living longer. Hospitals are opening their doors. I hope that's happening here, too. Somebody told me there are a number of sisters here from the hospital, or two hospitals, and I think that's tremendous. They're learning a little bit, I hope, about alcoholism and what it is and how we feel about it, we people who have it, and what can be done with us. For there's a great deal of hope. Alcoholics can get well if they have the chance. And if they live through some of the terrible episodes that kill a lot of them for lack of medical care, for lack of hospitalization, I think a majority of alcoholics could get well. If people knew what it was and knew how to recognize it and knew where to turn, knew more about us, well, here is one of the responsibilities, I think. I was absolutely horrified recently. I went into a big city, and they showed me the list of their meetings, a little pamphlet, six, eight pages, bottom meetings. And at the bottom of every page, it said, open meetings are not for anyone but family. The only difference between a closed meeting and an open meeting is the family could go to the open meeting. They do not permit any outsiders to attend a meeting. Well, I think we have a responsibility to let all those people out there who see alcoholics by virtue of what they do, whether it's nursing or social work or medicine or religion, to let these people come to meetings and find out what AA is really like. To let them learn about alcoholism by attending an open meeting. This, I think, is a responsibility in the early days of AA when there was nothing. No doctors, no beds, no hospital beds. Nobody had ever heard of an alcoholism clinic. It was our responsibility to talk about this, to let people know there was such a thing as AA. And we did. And this is why so many of you are here. This word responsibility, I think, has many more meanings 
than that listed on the program in that one meaning. Because in that one meaning, other things are required if that is to be true. And if there is any one thing to me, it is the way in which I tried to learn and am still trying to learn to accept my responsibilities as a human being and one of God's creations. Thank you.